Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, September the 12th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. In a little while, we're going to be hearing from Newton Emerson and Amanda Ferguson about the rather colourful testimony at the Cash for Ash inquiry in Belfast. But first, I'm joined by our political correspondent, Harry McGee. Harry, welcome back, I should say. You haven't been in the studio in quite a while. No, I had a, a, a prolonged uh, sojourn uh, during the summer. I had a slight accident when I was rock climbing and I uh, injured myself. And I oh, was dear. off for uh, several weeks. Right. I, I hope that's an end to the rock climbing now. It's, uh, well, that will be a matter that will be the subject of very intense and meaningful uh, negotiations over the coming six months or a year. Right, well, you're, you're very welcome back anyway. Uh, just looking at the front of today's Irish Times, the page one lead, um, the Scally report, uh, more leaks really um, from this about it, about it recommending a full overhaul of the cancer screening process in in reaction to the really the catastrophic revelations about it over the last year or so. Yeah, there's probably a um, there's probably a little black book that tells uh, governments how to communicate information to the general public, and none of what happened in the past two days would be contained in it because it has turned out to be a bit of a mess uh, from a government communications point of view. First of all, there there was a leak uh, which where we were uh, uh, lucky enough to have uh, in our newspaper RT also had some of the details, and that created its own controversy. And then uh, some of the recommendations that have been made by Gabriel Scali uh, will also be controversial and will be the matter of some contention and uh, some uh, debate. Now, just to be clear, I mean, it's our job as journalists to get this kind of information and, uh, and it, was, it was a leak and it was a scoop, essentially, for the Irish Times. But from the point of view of the department, it's a particularly damaging one because of the nature of the story, the people who are affected by it, the women, um, some of them terminally ill, uh, bereaved families who are waiting for this report. It's a terrible way for it to come out. And, and in this instance, it can't be blamed on some uh, disgruntled uh, and bitter minor official somewhere down the line uh, the number of people and departments who had a hold of the actual report were very few. Uh, it was the Department of Health, uh, the Department of Antishuk, uh, uh one or two others. The HSE had not actually received its copy of the report and had not been briefed uh, on it. So it was contained to within very few. So the leak came from a relatively um, high level. And um, I, I think it was a, a huge embarrassment uh, for the government. Uh, Taoiseach Leo Varadkar described it yesterday as disgusting. And for a Taoiseach who is not prone uh, to be uh, an exaggerator in terms of the language he uses, that was quite a, uh, a strong word. But then when you go to the substance of the report itself, I think the report itself is very comprehensive. Um, there are 50 recommendations and there are some startling findings. I mean, first of all, he says that in his opinion, uh, there is no need for a commission of investigation. And that seems to run counter uh, to uh, the recommendation that was made by the government itself as far back as June, Simon Harris, saying he believed that a commission of investigation uh, should take uh, place. Well, it's an interesting contrast, though, isn't it? Because I think it's clear to anybody looking at it from outside that, that, that the reaction of the government to this crisis when it emerged was very knee-jerk. So it wasn't necessarily... 
um, it wasn't necessarily based on careful reflection and analysis of the situation. We saw that with some of the commitments which were made rather lightly in retrospect by, by, by the Taoiseach and Mr Harris in relation to indemnifying uh, people who had been affected by this. Yeah, having a commissioner or tribunal, I'm not saying that it has become the, the uh, reaction of first resort, but certainly I think that sometimes uh, governments have tended uh, to bend the knee to kind of populist demand and go along with quite expansive uh, commissions of investigation. And one of the things, one of the difficulties with the Commission of Investigation or a tribunal is that if you want to have a conclusion, you're going to have to wait several years. You know, they, they say that this will all be done and dusted in a year. But what happens is that uh, they become quite complicated. They become quite costly. Uh, sometimes witnesses are reluctant to attend. Uh, sometimes more documentation uh, is um, available than had been thought. And what happens invariably is that the process itself uh, uh, spins on and on and on. And sometimes, as we saw with the tribunals, uh, both of which started in 1997, this is the planning tribunal, the Moriarty tribunal, and both of them took 15 years uh, to complete their, their work or more. And by the time they published their reports, uh, the matters which were uh, of urgent, uh, co- uh, of an urgent nature at the time had long since slipped into, uh, into history and had receded from public uh, memory. That's one of the points that, that Dr. Scali makes in the course of his report. The other thing is that, uh, and it's clear from, from, from what we have read of it so far, is that he believes that the, the issues are, are relatively crystal clear. The failures are crystal clear and do not need much more uh, investigation. Now, he didn't have the power to compel witnesses, uh, nor does he have the power to make findings uh, of, of fact, as would, would we have in a commission of investigation. Uh, but the errors that he has identified are, are, are clear, uh, as, are, as are also the, the tenor of the recommendations. Uh, the remedies are, are very clear from what, from what we've read so far, aren't they? Yeah, well, yeah. it was, I mean, the, 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 the biggest cardinal error and something that was uh, a disgrace was that women were not informed uh, of the uh, results of the audit and they should have been. And he said that they should have been automatically told uh, it shouldn't have been left to somebody else or, or the health services should not have uh, indulged in a game of pass the parcel uh, in terms of that exercise. Just to be absolutely clear that the, um, the, the failure to inform them of the initial false, false diagnosis did not actually affect the subsequent treatment. No, no, it didn't. It is an important point. To that's this. quite true. But the, the, the failure to communicate to, that, to them, a, a doctor has a, a duty and medical services have a duty uh, to tell the, the parents of uh, the patient. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the it's their personal in, information. In, in relation to their information. So, I mean, it's, it's a very good and a very comprehensive uh, report and it will leave the government in a bit of a quandary because he does make quite a strong recommendation that no commission of investigation uh, should uh, take place. And now they will have to revisit, uh, as you say, the Pavlovian reaction of the summer where they said a commission of investigation would take place. I think it will depend to a large extent on how the opposition react. If the opposition continue to uh, pressurise uh, the government uh, for a commission of investigation, especially uh, if those who have been affected by it also say that a commission of investigation uh, is needed, I think we will have a commission of investigation. Even though that might not be the most satisfactory outcome? Well, it, it, it might not really add all that much to the knowledge that we have at present. And that's it also might defer decisions in terms of improving the service and the recommendations in this report. Absolutely. And, and there are decisions that should be taken and they should be taken coldly uh, uh, and um, on the basis of the facts and not on the basis of public pressure or on the basis of the kind of the heat uh, that's generated 
uh, by a by the story of a day or by a controversy like this. Right. Well, maybe we turn from the very serious to something that I can't help still thinking about as the rather absurd, which is the uh, presidential contest. Certainly at this point, anyway, with these characters traipsing around the county councils of Ireland. Yeah, it's become. It's become a circus, there's no doubt. And it was a circus in 2011. And it was possibly a circus in uh, uh, 1997 uh, as well. Uh, it's extraordinary because uh, the, the power to get a nomination from county councils has been there since the constitution was written back in 1937. And uh, it was never used. Um, a guy called Patrick McCartan tried to use it in 1945. He tried to get the support of four councils. He was an independent Republican, but he failed to do so. But in the event, he actually got into uh, the race by getting the backing of 20 Arachthus members. That's the other way of uh, getting backing, uh, official, uh, constitutional uh, uh, backing to go into the race. Uh, so the next person to try and use it was Dana, uh, Dana Rosemary Scallon in 1997. And she managed to get the support of five councils. And at the time, it was a, a big media event. And the media dutifully followed her around from local authority to local authority as she sought the nomination. And uh, she got it. And then another contender in 1997, Derek Scally, uh, quickly went uh, uh, along uh, that route and also got it. So Derek Nally, perhaps. Derek Nally, yes, yeah, sorry. I, I, uh, my, my memory is a little bit wonky this morning. Um, so since then, uh, local authorities have, have jealously protected that particular part of their powers. There are a few powers in comparison to national governments, but that is one that they have that attracts national publicity. So it's a bit of an ego trip for them? A little bit, but I mean, I think at the same time, it's an important part of the democratic process. They have a part to play in a presidential election and they're quite conscious of it. And many of them have risen to the challenge this summer, as we've seen uh, with the kind of the carousel or merry-go-round of candidates uh, traipsing from council uh, to council. And the unfortunate thing from their point of view is that many councils tend to meet on the same day. They tend to meet either on a Monday or on a Thursday afternoon or on a Friday. So you'll have a councillor in Monaghan in the morning trying to make a mad dash to go to Fingal and then trying to get down to Offaly and Westmeath uh, before the close of business to essentially make the same stump pitch. To and apart from the pitch, I mean, do you have a sense as well that there's a process, particularly if, because it does seem to me that there's a sort of Premier League of candidates and a First Division or Dr. Martin's League of candidates as well. You know, there, there are people who, who have now already received, you know, they have, have received the, the necessary four, four council votes and always looked like they were going to get them. By, by, yeah, by I, I made I made the point several uh, uh, weeks ago that from precedent, candidates of substance will invariably get nominations irrespective of whether councillors agree or disagree with them in terms of their political outlook or philosophy. And from the start, the, the three who were who would have been considered uh, to be in the Premier League, uh, to use your uh, analogy, uh, would have been Sean Gallagher, who stood and came second in 2011, uh, Gavin Duffy, uh, the former Dragons Dance star, maybe he's a current Dragons Dance star, I'm not quite sure, uh, but a businessman as well, uh, with a very high profile, and Senator Joan Freeman, uh, who has campaigned in on the issue of suicide and is also the founder of uh, Pieta uh, House. And as we saw this week, all three of them have either crossed the line or just about to cross so, the line. So we'll have too the, much difficulty. The, the three of them, um, we'll have a Sinn Féin candidate who looks almost certain to be Leon Urieda, barring mm. a big big surprise, um, and, and Michael D. Higgins, who, 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 who nominates himself. Any chance at all of anybody else sneaking through? There, well, there are two routes. There are still, I was, I was actually doing a tot yesterday of, there, there's at least uh, 10 councils uh, which will be discussing the matter 
are deciding the issue in the coming uh, week. Now, Kildare uh, discussed it yesterday, but have deferred a vote until the 24th. Uh, but Monaghan, uh, Kerry, Loud, uh, Limerick um, uh, and a number of other councils will be making decisions. Cavan will be making a decision on Thursday over the next uh, few days. So there is a, an outside chance that some other candidate uh, could sneak in. But then when you look at the candidates, uh, uh, the candidates are they just might have difficulty because they would be seen to be uh, slightly marginal in terms of their politics. There's the independent journalist Gemma O'Doherty and she has gone around the country That's with... independent with a small eye. With a small eye, yeah. She used to be an independent uh, news journalist but now she is um, a, an independent freelance journalist in her own right. And she's an investigative journalist who has been campaigning against corruption and uh, against state uh, corruption. But I think uh, the reception from councillors has been cool. She got a uh, very uh, uh, strong uh, bout of excoriating criticism from Jimmy Geeran uh, at Fingal on Monday. She also had an interesting encounter at Clare County Council last week where um, she suggested that uh, the councillors might want to watch their watch their step or they might end up in court for yeah. defamation. Well, she was trying to um, attract their votes at the same time she was being uh, slightly uh, confrontational with them but I think the exchange was confrontational but her message is in relation to corruption and I don't think that has uh, had any resonance with councillors who, who just don't see it as a particular function or role of a president. Councillors see themselves having no role in corruption. No, they don't, but some do, uh, some have, but I mean, the majority would see themselves as honest. Uh, but isn't isn't the truth, and I think, I mean, let's agree here that the, the strong likelihood is now is that there'll be five candidates in this race. Um, is, isn't the, we, we all know, the reality is we're going to have endless spiels from all five of them now over the next while that they want to be a voice for this or they want to be a symbol of that or they want to open the doors of the Auras to some particular group of people. Mm. And I I wonder, is it going to be actually a very dull presidential election, this one? Because they're quite a dull bunch. Well, what, what usually happens in a presidential election is the messages tend to be very insipid and vapid and vacuous because, let's face it, the, the, the roles and functions of a president is quite limited. The, the president has a number of reserved functions under the constitution. They can form and dissolve a government and doyle. oil. Uh, they uh, can accept the resignation or, or, or appointment of a minister, and then if they uh, have, um, if if they if they are of the belief that a particular piece of legislation might not be constitutional, uh, they can convene a meeting of the Council of State to discuss it, and then they can uh, refer to the Supreme Court, or the President can refer to the Supreme Court uh, following that meeting of the Council of State. So the actual role is quite limited. Uh, the president, when he or she wants to go abroad, must get the permission of the government. Uh, the president's speeches are meant to be beyond politics and are always sent to the government of the day uh, for uh, approval. Now, since Mary Robinson, I think presidents have been kind of pushing out the envelope sure. in terms of what they can do and what they can say. And Michael D, I think, has been particularly uh, adept at, been doing at, at right, doing that. Right up until he had, we gave a big speech last week, which was very critical of, of countries involved in the armaments industry, for example. Absolutely. And yeah. he has had criticisms of, of Donald Trump's uh, and others. He's couched very carefully sometimes in the language that he's used. Uh, but the subliminal message has always, has, has always been quite uh, clear. But the government uh, have clearly tolerated that and have no real uh, difficulty with that, even though I'd say that some of the more sticky mandarins within the Department of Foreign Affairs might have difficulty uh, from time to time. So the message tends to be quite um, abstract and kind of it's a vision thing and 
I'm going to represent, you know, the yeah. diaspora or the marginalised or the young. But but then, historically, certainly in the last couple of elections, what's tended to happen with these larger fields is it's got very personal, very fast. That's, then. that's Yeah, so the message tends to be vapid, but then the, the assassination attacks happen. And if you look, there were seven last time and six yeah. of them got absolutely... And, uh, and that did happen last time, but I just wonder whether that's going to happen this time. These are really, you know, it's we, we have a clear leader who's the incumbent, which is we've never had before, the incumbent actually actively engaging in the race because it didn't happen in 1966. Um, it sounds like most of the other ones are going to hold their fire in terms of directly attacking him. They'll be mumbling about his age and, and stuff like well, that, well, 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 how much younger they are. But that's not really much of an exciting campaign. No, I think because the messages tend to be bland, the campaign revolves around the propriety and the standing of the candidates. And if there are any weaknesses or if there have been any peccadilloes or if there's been anything that displays a kind of a, a personal weakness, uh, they have been ruthlessly exposed in the past. But I think there's a general agreement that perhaps the uh, campaign of 2011 was too vicious and too personal, too confrontational and too hostile. And I think, I mean, Sean Gallagher was, was in the 2011 contest and I'm sure he'll be wiser uh, to, to all of the pitfalls six or seven years. Has anybody later. asked Sean Gallagher what he's been at for the last seven years? Is, is, is he, can we just expect him until he gets to 65 or 70 to pop up every seven years and say he wants to be president? Well, he's been, he's written a book. Um, I think he was involved in a legal action. He's a chairman of a nutrition company that is based in the US and I think he, he is involved with a an Irish company as well, which I believe is a development company. Right, but here's a man who who believes he has something serious to offer the state in its, in its, in its hour of need, or so it appeared in 2011 anyway, didn't see fit to express that those gifts on behalf of the state in any way since, be it election to the Oireachtas or to a local county council or many of the other ways in which one can contribute in, to civic society. In the society. interim, that's a valid criticism that I think will come up during the campaign. But the, the I don't think the attacks will be as personal this time as they were, but I think you're quite right. I think people will be looking at people's record in terms of public service uh, to see if they stand up to scrutiny. And that, that would be certainly one of the questions that Sean Gallagher will face. What you're saying about Michael D. Higgins, I think from, from what people have been saying, they've been very careful, the other uh, prospective candidates, not to criticise Michael D. Higgins and to talk about his uh, presidency in terms of being an outstanding uh, success. But then they talk about, we're not, uh, Sean Gallagher said, I don't want to replace him, I want to succeed him. And uh, then they talk about the challenges of the next seven years of a very different Ireland, of very different challenges, of the turbulence. So the subliminal message there is, you know, he's 77 now. He's had his uh, innings. You know, if he gets another term, the question of age will invariably come into it. Uh, And I think that there is a need for generational change. And if you look to what Joan Freeman has said and Gavin Duffy has said, uh, they've said it in different ways, but they've pursued the same theme. So Michael D. Higgins' age will definitely become a big issue uh, during the campaign. The other thing that he would have to defend is the kind of undertaking he gave seven years ago that he would serve only one term. People, of course, are allowed to uh, make up their mind. As Sean Connery once famously said, never say never again. Uh, but that is something that Michael D. Higgins might have to explain. Yeah, and who knows, maybe I'll get slightly less underwhelmed by this particular topic in the future. But for the moment, Harry, thanks for joining us. We're going to be talking cash for ash. Now, we are devoting the rest of this podcast to a story which is pretty complex and hard to explain, and it is currently taking place in Northern Ireland, so not everybody is paying attention to it. I'm going to take a minute just to set out some of the key facts. Many of you will have heard about the Cash for Ash scandal. 
It concerns a government-funded scheme in the North to incentivise the use of renewable energy, specifically the burning of wood pellets, hence the ash. It's a scheme which ran way out of control and ended up costing Northern Ireland taxpayers hundreds of millions of pounds. And the reason that it ran out of control was very simple. For every £1 which you invested, you got £1.60 back. And there were no limits to how much you could invest. And the result was people burning wood pellets all over the place to heat empty barns and factories and so on. And it was so lucrative that the stoves for burning the pellets became valuable commodities in their own right. Now, you might expect that such an obviously crazy scheme would be fairly quickly recognised and brought to an end. But in Northern Ireland, under the auspices of the Democratic Unionist Party, it ran for more than two years. And when the problem was finally recognised in 2016, it led to a huge public outcry and public recriminations within the DUP party ranks. It also precipitated the collapse of the executive in 2017. And it is now the subject of an inquiry which began hearing evidence again last week after a summer break. Some of the details that have emerged in that inquiry in recent days are perhaps nearly as surprising, if not nearly as costly, as the original scandal itself. To quickly list just a few of those, uh, a government minister threatening to break an advisor's finger, a secret dossier on the sex lives of DUP politicians, a drunken junket in New York that ended with a late-night ministerial rendition of Breakfast at Tiffany's by Deep Blue something. One of the big themes, though, that has emerged is the power of unelected special advisers or SPADs within the Northern Ireland executive. And there are the usual questions about who knew what and when. But as you are soon going to hear, perhaps most importantly for Northern Irish society and politics, apart from the enormous waste of money and the consequences of that waste, is the apparent lack of accountability or any consequence for what went on. To find out more, we called Amanda Ferguson, who's a freelance reporter based in Belfast, who's been covering the story, and also Irish Times columnist Newton Emerson. Here's that conversation. Amanda Ferguson, you've uh, had the pleasure of attending and reporting on this really remarkable inquiry over the last while. How's it been? Well, it's, it's certainly been interesting. There's been uh, sort of peaks in public interest in the inquiry. It's been rumbling on for a number of months now. Um, a lot of the sort of uh, technical uh, dry information hasn't really sparked that much public interest but we've reached this sort of critical stage of the inquiry where the the high-profile witnesses um, are given their sort of statements and are given their evidence, um, and some of that has been pretty colourful. So it's uh, certainly hitting all the headlines in the north at the moment and beyond. And when you talk about the crucial evidence, what, what are we talking about? What are the sort of key points that are being excavated now? And what have we heard maybe in the last, in the last week or more that wasn't known previously? Okay, well, the, you know, the, the inquiry panel itself and the lawyers have been sort of forensic in their scrutiny of, of each witness. It's concerned with, uh, you know, probing the design and, and the introduction of the scheme and how it functioned, how it was overseen, you know, who promoted it, um, events around sort of the spikes in application, the, the delay um, in the closure of the scheme. So uh, Sir Patrick Coughlin, the, the inquiry chair, has been very keen to, to focus on that and maybe some of the sort of uh, more colourful testimony uh, between the DUP characters where maybe they're they're making so digs at each other. Um, he's tried to sort of d- diminish that by saying, you know, this isn't a media sensational platform and he's just trying to sort of stick to the facts so that uh, he can come up with his, um, his findings. But this week we've heard from um, former Enterprise Minister Jonathan Bell. He was a Strangford MLA. He took over um, the role of Enterprise Minister from Arlene Foster. He was obviously the minister in charge whenever the, the scheme was set up. 
Um, but, you know, he was at the helm whenever it all fell apart and, and eventually led to Stormont collapsing. So we've had some some colourful testimony from him about um, how he felt that the DUP was conducting a smear campaign against him and, and, and various allegations around, uh, around that. So th this week's really been focused on who knew what when um, and, and that's been disputed between, you know, uh, Mr. Bell and, and between the various SPADs, the, the special advisors uh, that, are be, that are being called to give their evidence as well. So the... Um, there's been a lot of discussion around the hierarchy amongst the UP special advisors. Um, Tim Cairns, who was uh, Mr. Bell's special advisor, they had a very difficult relationship. And he described um, Timothy Johnson uh, and other SPAD as kind of the, the top of the tree. Um, he, he described him as almost as in second in command in the DUP, even above um, you know, the deputy leader, Nigel Dodds. So he's now the chief executive of the party. And essentially the, the witness uh, evidence from Timothy Cairns has been that Timothy Johnson issued um, a direction that there should be no cost controls in RHI. Now, Timothy Johnson denies this. Um, and uh, in, in December 2016, Arlene Foster had given a BBC interview where she had said Timothy Johnson wasn't involved in the delay of cost controls. So that raises some huge questions. And um, whenever she's due to appear, um, you know, at the inquiry later this month, there'll be a lot of focus on, on what she knew and when. Yeah. So, so just to pull back a little bit on all this, uh, Newton Emerson, they kind of it uncovers a world which may not be that familiar to our listeners, but which, which you'd be familiar with of the way in which the governing classes in Northern Ireland and at Stormont worked this relationship between SPADs, special advisors and elected politicians and the kind of the, the power balance between those two and where decisions are made and how they're made. And all this feeds into this massive cock-up which happened around this particular scheme. Yes, it seems the DUP was run by a, a very tight cabal of, uh, of unelected members behind the scenes. Not a unique feature of the DUP, perhaps in Northern Ireland parties, but um, certainly, uh, uh, you know, uh, unusual in, in being a purely civilian phenomenon, let's put it that way. Uh, and while, as, as Amanda's pointed out, this is a very, very complicated story and, and an extremely detailed inquiry, uh, you know, what, what you've got to look for is are, are, are the broad themes that emerge and what, what is the public going to grasp you know what, what? What? What's the what's the narrative that's going to be taken from 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 this very very complicated uh, public inquiry? And this is what is emerging. This this idea of uh, of the special advisors in control. Uh, I think that uh, Sam McBride, the uh, political editor at the newsletter, has been uh, very very good at, uh, at at trying to to extract a, a story from all this detail and present it in a, in a in a very comprehensive fashion. And he's he, he's been very important in uh, in 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 telling this story to the public, and this is the this is the big theme that's emerging. I think the question is, uh, what what happens with that? You know, uh, uh, these are the men in grey suits you're talking about here, Mrs. Thatcher's men in grey suits, who would tap the leader on the shoulder and, and and tell them when to go. Well, who taps them on the shoulder and tells them when to go? Does the public want them to go? Can they be made to go? Uh, is it? I mean, is anything going to come of this? Actually, that that that's the interesting question. Does does it matter to discover this about the DUP? Now, that's you know that's a question which can often arise when you know in dysfunctional political systems. Um, uh, our own Fintan O'Toole has often commented on the impunity. Uh, culture here in here in the south, where you know actions which clearly should have consequences don't have consequences. Um, is that more or less exactly the same thing in in Belfast, or is it is there an added element that because of the political dispensation up there that 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 adds to the lack of accountability which you're describing there? 
Well, what you're really asking there is a question about uh, about the elected members. Uh, of course, there's no accountability for the unelected members, and there's never there, there's never any expectation of that. Uh, the, the the separate question of what happens to to any elected politicians found at fault by this inquiry uh, again raises the issue of impunity because. I think that uh, well, well, it was Donald Trump who said he could shoot a man dead on Fifth Avenue and still get elected. Well, well, we've put that almost literally to the test in Northern Ireland. You can do far worse things than screw up a heating scheme and see your vote here only rise. So whatever is said about Arlene Foster, for example, or whatever is found, however badly her testimony goes, will she lose a single vote over it? I can't see it. So uh, what happens to her? What happens to her when uh, when the men in grey suits in the party appear to be in even more trouble? Um, we have, between the DUP and Sinn Féin, created a, a, a two-party competition where the more uh, unstable and the more uh, the more competitive those parties become for each other, the more it ratchets each other's votes, uh, votes up. That's all that happens. So, uh, I, I mean, I'm starting to ask, the, the worse this inquiry gets, I think the, the question that's hanging over it is, so what? And, and does that present an even a, even a further question for the entire political system in Northern Ireland? Politicians won't lose votes. The men in grey suits can't be sacked. The civil servants who ran the scheme, who've been proved to be just as inept, well, they're unaccountable as well. And perhaps even the most damning inquiry you can run <laughs> still doesn't make a difference. So what does make a difference in Northern Ireland? And, and how serious is this, Amanda? I mean, how much money was lost as a result of this thing? Well, there was a projected overspend of, of hundreds of millions of pounds. And I think what... Um, uh, Newton's saying there is quite right. Everybody knows that the you know the, the RHI uh, scandal, the cash for ass scandal, as, as it became to, to be known. Everybody uh, you know in the public it captured their imagination because we all know that you don't waste heat. You know you don't leave the immersion heater on, um, and they could get you know the one pound sixty for the one pound uh, subsidy uh, side of things. But RHI was you know one of the key reasons why Stormont collapsed in January of 2017, and we heard just this week in, in the inquiry, uh, Sir Patrick Coughlin saying you know whenever Timothy the, the advisor had said, you know, politics is a grubby world and essentially that he was prepared to fit the party narrative, if, even if it didn't quite fit, you know, how he felt about it. Um, whenever he described it as grubby, um, you know, Sir Patrick Coughlin said that's something of an understatement. And I think that that's, you know, that that would be the general consensus among, among everybody. But Newton is correct. You know, in the north, in Northern Ireland, we have the DUP, we have Sinn Féin, we have this contested space to compete in um, aspirations for the future. And, you know, I, I really can't see how that this would make um, much of a difference, even though, you know, it, it's clear that there's been widespread incompetence and that there's going to be, you know, uh, millions of pounds uh, wasted. Um, it, it won't make a difference to to how much uh, the DUP, um, you know, get, get votes at the next election, because, you know, particularly around Arlene Foster, that, you know, the DUP and its voters won't want to feel as if um, she's been pushed out or forced out by Sinn Féin. And that's where we're at. You know, sure. it's, as professional as it is, that's where we're at. That, that, that's a depressing thing. I, I, I want to bring in Harry McGee in a second, who's, who's here with me. But uh, Amanda, I, I do want to you, ask you about, you made reference to the more colourful elements. And this is one of the things I think that we found striking. I mean, Newton refers to men in grey suits, but they, whatever the colour of their suits, they seem to lead quite colourful lives sometimes in terms of some of the stories we've heard over the last the last couple of weeks. Well, this is true. You know, um, last week in the inquiry, uh, Jonathan Bell, the, the the former minister, um, had to deny that he tried to break his spad's finger. 
Um, and at one point, uh, he tried to introduce what he described uh, as a spad talking to him about DUP ministers' alleged sexual misbehaviour. Now, um, unsurprisingly, uh, the, the inquiry chair sort of warned that this wasn't the sort of uh, sensational uh, media platform, that it wasn't something that was to be used to sort of uh, make digs at each other. But uh, I think uh, the public can sort of latch on and, and journalists and whoever else can, can latch on to the to the funnier side um, of the evidence that's been given. You know, there were there were allegations, um, you know, of, of Mr. Bell being uh, drunk in a New York pub and, and falling asleep and and being asked to leave. And at, at one point, the, he was alleged that he was unsteady on his feet and um, had to be sort of helped back to the hotel while he while he sang breakfast at Tiffany at the top of his lungs. So um, all those little details, you know, are, are, are great headlines for people, but it doesn't really get into the nitty gritty of the, the who and you what and when and who's actually responsible for, for this. Fear. I mean, there's, there's not just that. There's stories about, you know, people people uh, secretly, him secretly recording conversations that he was that he was having with people. There's talk about a dossier about sexual sexual activities of two 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 different ministers, two different DUP ministers. There's talk about this. There's some strange stuff about evangelical Christianity coming into the conversation somewhere as well. Yeah, well, that, that always tends to come into the conversation whenever we're talking about the North. Um, I think that the, around the recording, I think um, Mr. Bell was questioned a number of times about why he had secretly recorded a conversation with his former permanent secretary, um, Dr. Andrew McCormick, when he was someone that he regarded as a person of integrity. And I think after a, a number of, uh, of of times being asked that eventually Mr. Bell said that he wanted a, a valid record of, of what his concerns were. So it, it has kind of been some, some particularly sort of outrageous and sort of head spinning evidence over the last uh, few days that's been sort of interwoven with all this technical detail about you know spikes in applications and who made decisions about um about delays in the closure of the scheme and i think that that's what the the, the panel that's what the inquiry is concerned with it's it's not concerned with the the maybe sort of uh, colorful stuff that, that might spark the interest of, of the public and of journalists newton those delays the the closure of the scheme that amanda just mentioned there they're seen as very important firstly because arlene foster stands accused of lying about her knowledge of them and also because a significant amount of the wasted money can be accounted for by the people who signed up in that short period just as the scheme was coming to a close. Arlene Foster has some pretty tricky questions to answer about that, doesn't she? Well, uh, does she? That, that, that is the question. I mean, are, are, are those questions tricky? She, uh, she, she said uh, effectively that um, she uh, wasn't really across the detail and she left it to her civil servants or her advisors to, to deal with it. They're now saying, well, actually, we did tell her about it. But these are the kind of things that, that do tend to get lost in the fog of detail. I, I can foresee the, the, the most damning finding of the inquiry being that Arlene Foster knew a bit more than she said she knew and didn't do everything that she could have done. And uh, there's no sanctions that can follow after that. Only, uh, only you know, a critical report. Uh, I, I don't think anyone is suggesting that that, that any criminal activity has taken place here. Not that it, that uh, inquiries ever do actually go on to to those kind of investigations. So, uh, I mean, I, I'm coming frustrated by the inquiry in the sense that the worse it gets, and it, it is in many ways a lot a lot worse. Than, than many people expected, the more it simply raises the question that uh, of what on earth, what on earth will happen? What what will be the consequences of this? Um, I understand that Sinn Féin genuinely believed this would shake the DUP to an extent where Arlene Foster would have to go, uh, and I think that Sinn Féin genuinely would like her to go so it can it can have an, a, a a better partner to deal with at Stormont, but. Um, I mean, they would they would have obviously a very well informed assessment of what was going on at RHI and inside the DUP. 
But I, I just don't see it. I think that all, all that's going to happen is the DUP is going to sustain some very bad publicity. Foster's reputation will take a knock and that will be it. Does it change the dynamics at all within the party in terms of a possible leadership heave or anything of that sort? Well, now, um, Jonathan Bell claims that he has been compiling a dossier of dirt that will uh, that, that will destroy DUP careers left, right and centre. Um, so I think, I mean, that, that raises the question of uh, who could replace Foster? Uh, you know, is, is anyone going to, st- to step forward? Can they? Um, is anyone any better than her? Uh, <clears throat> I think that... that um, there is a there is a, a clear shortage of names that could go forward to replace her. You also have to remember that Foster has won the two highest elections. She's got two highest election results in a row in DUP history. Now, not for very positive reasons, but it's hard when you're a party manager to argue against that kind of success, to forgo it, to just ditch it and take a risk on someone new. So, uh, so I, the, the more I look at this and the worse it gets, uh, the, the, the more I'm thinking, what's actually going to come of it? Right. Well, Amanda, can you just tell us, I suppose, to wrap it up, what, what's coming up next, you know, this week and over the next while and how long does the inquiry go on for? OK, well, uh, we'll, we'll hear from um, another special advisor uh, in the course of this week. And then Arlene Foster is due to give evidence again. She's already appeared, but she's due to give evidence again at some point um, in September. But the date um, has yet to be fixed. So, you know, the, the inquiry is going through millions of documents and, and scores of witnesses. And I think they're due to to um, wrap up with um, their, their, their witness sort of evidence uh, around the end of October. And then the lawyers will make all of their you know final submissions by December. And then we're due to have the published report um, in the early part of 2019. So uh, no one our luck will probably just co- coincide with Brexit. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Early 2019 is looking as if it's going to be a pretty entertaining time on the island of Ireland. And you never know, Donald Trump might have got here by then, Harry. He, he might have. I think the uh, we could hear a very loud collective sigh of relief coming from uh, Kildare Street last night when the news started filtering out uh, that he's not coming in November because I think his visit uh, would be more of a headache than anything else for the government. Indeed it would. Indeed it would. But you know, there's still a possibility he might be showing up in the next few months. We'll leave it there. Thanks very much to Harry. Thanks also to Declan Conlon and to JJ Vernon on our desk today. Uh, Remember, you can mail me at hlinahan at irishtimes.com or you can always find me on Twitter. But until the next time, thanks very much for listening.